This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. And on behalf of everyone here at SNN, I'd like to wish you all a very happy holidays and new year. As always, you can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 79. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Thomas Backrack, founder and principal at PFH Capital. I met Thomas at the Microcap Leadership Summit back in September And uh, when we were at the bar debating whether investing in an airport in a third world country was one, uh, an investable idea, and then two, uh, trying to figure out who would then go and fly over to do the due diligence. And uh, but (laughs) but all joking aside, I I actually really enjoyed chatting with him and learning his ideas on investing and microcaps. Thomas recently launched PFH Capital, a globally focused investment advisor focused on, and I quote, micro and small cap businesses with significant insider ownership, ample growth runway, and healthy finances, as it states on the PFH Capital website. So I I thought that the goal for this interview was to learn more about his investment philosophy and strategy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 79, and please enjoy my interview with Thomas Backrack, founder and principal at PFH Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2019 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30th to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30 to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I would like to welcome Thomas Backrack, founder and principal at PFH Capital. Thomas, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So uh, as we always do here when we uh, get started on the podcast, let's get your background. I mean, how did you get into the wide world of investing microcaps in finance? Yeah, so like, you know, I'm the uh, principal of PFH Capital. We're just quick background on us. It's an investment advisor based in the northern Philly suburbs. We're uh, long biased, uh, globally focused predominantly micro and small cap equities, as your listeners would probably guess. Um, on a personal basis, uh, you know, I took a uh, somewhat, I'd say, unorthodox route to investing. Uh, when I graduated college back in 05, you know, my goal was to move overseas, have some adventures. Um, I hadn't really been in investing before and it hadn't become a passion yet. Um, and and, and the process of doing that, I ended up hired by a large Egyptian construction firm uh, and moving over to Egypt. Um, I ended up spending half a decade there. Uh, we had projects throughout North Africa and the Middle East. Um, when I originally got the job, uh, you know, I I had majored in economics, and I told them that in the interview, and and they must have heard accounting, and uh, they kind of just you know 
slapped me under the CFO of a $2 billion construction segment. Um, so, you know, I, I figured that'd be a disaster given I didn't have, you know, counting knowledge per se. So, uh, but, you know, and this is probably career advice to uh, your, your listeners out there, um, your young ones, at least, uh, you know, if you're uh, looking for a job, being an American in the third world, at least in Egypt back then, it was uh, it was not a bad move because I kind of walked in with a certain amount of faux credibility. Uh, people kind of assumed I knew what I was doing and just kind of threw me in the deep end. And uh, by the time I came back to the U.S., I actually was a you know half decent accountant. So it was um, you know the experience was awesome over there. My, my wife and I ended up back in uh, in Philly, which is her hometown. Uh, when we were getting ready to have our first kid, um, we'd had a couple good investments over in Egypt and, uh, you know, we're lucky enough to kind of get out of them before things blew up in 2011 over there. Uh, so we, you know, we got back and I, I wanted to put my assets and finance and accounting knowledge to work. So I kind of figured I teach myself public markets investing. Um, you know, at, at that point, my path, I can't say it was really all that abnormal, um, you know, I was kind of hooked the first second I discovered Buffett and Munger, you know, I know that's cliche, but, uh, you know, they were, they were kind of putting all the thoughts I already had in my head into coherent letters and interviews. Um, and, and, you know, and I was, I was fortunate to kind of, you know, that I've kind of grown in the uh, internet age here, you know, back in the day, I would have needed to kind of luck upon, uh, the right job and mentor, but, you know, with the internet, I was able to kind of hand select my, my own mentors. So, um, you know, one end of the spectrum, that's other small investors, blogs, comment sections, things like that, that you're collaborating with on ideas. And at, at the other end, it's guys like Buffett and Munger who you're, you know, you're never going to meet, but, um, end up having a huge impact on you. Um, you know, I completed a CFA program in 2014, which, you know, that was fine, but you know, nothing kind of replaces, you know, you know, actually doing it, you know, and practicing and kind of getting your 10,000 hours. Um, PFH Capital, the entity, um, I set it up in 2014 to manage some family funds alongside my own. Um, and I, I didn't really go full time now as a, uh, as an investor until a couple months ago when I kind of dropped the consulting gig I had, which was with the same Egyptian company I referenced earlier. Um, and, and it's, it's been awesome so far. I mean, I can't tell you how nice it is, uh, just being able to focus full time on the investing, not having one arm tied behind your back with the, uh, you know, a consulting business, having your phone ringing all day. So that's kind of the background that brings us, brings us to this call. For sure. <laughs> so, so, so when you, so I have to ask firstly, like how, how cool of a job is that right out of college? You go to, you go to Egypt. I mean, it's <laughs> so random. <laughs> it, it, it was, I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, in, in college, like I had, so, so I actually, as so I started college and I went to Cornell university and I started in 2001 Mm-hmm. And I mean, my first week there was, was nine 11 and it was mm-hmm. like, you know, we were there right there in New York. And so, you know, it was like, it, it, you know, it created some demand for, for, I'd say Arabic language. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at the time I was thinking, yeah, I'm in this, like, I'm in this liberal arts, you know, program and the only tangible useful skill I could probably pick up is language. So, and I, and I, and I went and looked at the time. I remember, uh, Mandarin met eight times a week and Arabic was five. So I ended up doing Arabic and, uh, so it was, I'd already been out there kind of on an abroad and I, I think I was able to talk my way in on a job because, because of my experience there. But I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's, I, I have two kids now and a wife, I'm in my thirties. It, it's much harder to do that. You know, these days it's, uh, to be out there. And like I said, from like a, you know, obviously we had just like a lot of fun out there. Um, but you know, it's, it's from a work standpoint, um, you know, you're over here out of college. I was just a 22 year old idiot and which would have been factually correct. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's over there. Um, you know, it's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's this, this American, he must know what he's doing. This so Ivy, this know. Ivy league. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so just wait, way too much credibility. Yeah. yeah. So, so you actually, you mentioned that you did your first investing when you were in Egypt, were you investing in, in, in American, in American listed companies or were you looking at actually, you know, some, some listed on the Cairo exchange or over there? It wasn't public markets over there. So it was actually, um, 
the biggest thing we did was we, we, you know, my wife and I, we were living out there for the like half a decade. So we ended up buying a property at one point, which was, you know, it was practically like this like bombed out like shack when we bought it, but it, it was, had 2000 square feet inside as an apartment and uh, 3000 square feet of rooftop outdoor space. Um, and it was right in this area called Zamalek, which is an island right dead center of the city is kind of a, uh, kind of where a lot of like the, the rich, um, you know, local Egyptians live. Um, it's not like an expat area per se, but it's, you know, and, and so we, we bought it, um, put a bunch of work into it and kind of turned it into this really, really awesome place. We had like an outdoor projector screen and bar and like all these things. I mean, it was just like a real fun kind of, you know, to be honest, Project, like party, yeah. party pad, if you may yeah. out there. <laughs> and, and uh, it was funny, you know, for, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, from the start, we were like, ah, yeah, we'll just sell it to like some Saudi or something when we leave. And lo and behold, that's what happened. So, uh, you know, we, we sold it for a heck of a lot more than we rented for. Um, and we had a great time living there. Um, the other thing is my wife actually opened up some some Curves gyms out there, which oh, was man. a, uh, you know, it, the all women's concept was kind of worked in the Middle East in a, in a way it was a slightly different model than what it was here mm-hmm. but you know she, she sold those so you know i mean we had no idea what we were doing but you know we just kind of got lucky and if we had hung around post the 2011 revolution i you know i would have had a lot less to work with I was, in public markets when i got back literally i was just going to ask about that because you know we met uh for those who were listening you know my, for my audience we met at the microcap leadership summit and it, i think it was at the bar when you were talking about how you know you were living in Egypt and you were there when you saw the Arab Spring, like I think you said, you're sitting on your on your uh, on your uh, 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 words blanking me, but you you tell the story better than me. Yeah, no, well, you know, actually, I have a theory about how it all un, you know kind of unfolded. You know, I'll go off topic here for a bit. By the way, <laughs> I apologize. Like... We will get to investing questions very shortly. No, 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 yeah, this <laughs> but... is. No, this is good. This will be the first. Uh, I think this will be the first honest public accounting of what happened in Egypt in 2011. Now, we uh, so we, you know, I, I was living like right by the Algerian embassy, and and in the 2010 uh, World Cup qualifiers, Egypt and Algeria went to like a, uh, you know, they, they 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 split the first two matches, and they basically had a third match in down. And they were playing it down in Sudan, and they were it was like a play-in match to go to the World Cup, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Egypt lost and, you know, the Algerian embassy kind of paid the price for that. Um, and we were all kind of hanging out on my balcony, just <laughs> watching it. <laughs> it kind of unfolded, you know, it was, uh, but, but at the time I remember, you know, I had a lot of, you know, young Egyptian friends and, you know, it, it, it you just got the sensation at the time. It's like, people are like, Oh, why, why would someone ride over soccer? This is stupid. And, you know, there was kind of a sensation at the time on young people. It's like, nah, like, it looks like they're practicing, you know? And, and I remember, and, and you know, cause back in the day in, in a place like Egypt, they were, um, yeah, they would spend three, four, you know, months planning a strike and, uh, we'd give the government plenty of time to kind of crack down on them. And by 2010, everyone's on Facebook, they could organize in a couple hours. So, um, you felt something coming for sure around then I thought, but it, it kind of came quicker and unexpected, you know, I, I, then, then I thought it would, but you know, um, but I loved it over there. I mean, anyone who's considering visiting Egypt, I mean, awesome people, um, beautiful country. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of got to know how to do it, but you know, it's, uh, so it's a great you, place. So what would you say, I mean, kind of getting back to our topic at hand, but related to that experience, you know, what would you say you drew from that experience that maybe helped you in your investing career? So, you know, I, I, w- I would basically say it's, uh, you know, I've, I think I take a pretty independent approach to things. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't, you know, you know, I didn't study finance and accounting kind of through the, the normal kind of Western eye for it. Um, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't kind of go into an iBanking career where it was, uh, everything was kind of, you know, there was a sh- kind of hazing structure you went through. Um, I, I, you know, I kind of, you know, I just, I, I, I kind of had to come at it from a, things that I, from, you know, kind of like a different angle. Um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the things I really kind of picked up from the experience I'd say 
which, you know, you, didn't, you don't have to be in Egypt to pick us up. You can be almost anywhere. But, you know, we were a publicly traded company over there. And, you know, I, I was doing all the financial reporting. I was helping with guidance. I, you know, I was doing all the stuff on the inside that as an investor I now look at from the outside. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I mean, it was, it was dumb luck. But in retrospect, I think it was – I think it serves me well as an investor because I just have a completely – different opinion of how the insides of these big corporate bureaucracies that are publicly traded work than a lot of the guys I know who have only been on the outside investor side. Um, you know, and, 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 and the way that manifests itself is I spend a lot more time thinking about management qualities and, uh, and incentives, um, because, you know, there's, there's nothing that beats owning a bunch of common shares in terms of, how someone's approach is, you know, salaried employees don't think like the owner of a business. So that that's not necessarily specific to Egypt, but that was a piece I definitely picked up in my perspective, you know, as an investor. So, mm-hmm. all right. So then, then to kind of transition back into, you know, uh, into micro caps and whatnot, you know, how would you say then you got your start investing in micro cap stocks? Yeah. So, you know, again, this is one of these things where it's, it's hard to put a precise, you know, finger on exactly what first pulled me into a market, um, a micro cap. Uh, but, you know, I, you know there, there's a book, you know, whatever you, uh, it's called, uh, you can be a stock market genius by Joel Greenblatt, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with a uh, great book, uh, even better title on that one. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I remember when I read that, you know, probably, probably a couple years after I started investing, uh, you know, it wasn't like the direct lessons of, you know, you know, spinoffs and things like that so much as the indirect ones, you know, it got me thinking more about, um, what are my advantages and disadvantages? Uh, you know, who are my capital market competition? Who are my counterparties? Um, and, and, you know, I was never going to be managing billions. Like if you gave me a billion dollars, I'd, I'd probably put 900 million of it at Vanguard. Um, so, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's like, like real, like that's just you know, that's like realistically, you know, where I would end up. So it's like, I you know, I I needed to embrace being small, and and over time, I I, I kind of came to believe that it's by far the biggest structural advantage you can have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to wade into liquid corners of the global market, you know, with with fifty thousand plus investable stocks out there, that's a huge advantage over like you know having to choose from a couple thousand that are liquid enough you know, watched by tons of analysts, you know, you can, you can widen your investment universe and you, you get to pick up this liquidity premium. And, and so obviously the micro caps, they're the extreme of that. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not like I won't consider non micro caps. I, I'll invest in small caps and Hey, maybe I'll invest in a large cap one day, but the micro caps are my, have become my wheelhouse based on that. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and I can expand on this too. I mean, you know, I have other thoughts about, you know, and this probably goes back to the, you know, my experience being on the inside of a relatively big company. Um, you know, being big's tough. You know, for for the company, not 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 just us as the outside investor, but for the company itself. Like, like some of the companies, you know, out there just don't seem to be at a, a, a like a size level and a level of complexity that a real life human can manage. You know, and like like I look at like J.P. Morgan, it's. You know, Jamie Dimon might be like a talented manager, but, you know, can you imagine being handed two and a half trillion in assets at 11 times leverage mm. and not steering it into a ditch eventually? I mean, it just, I just, I'm not sure that's something a human can do, you know? And I mean, you know, another problem I have kind of with a large, and I'm probably attacking more large caps here than supporting micro caps, but it's the same thing. Um, you know, I mean, no, go for no, it. Hey, this is a microcap podcast. So I no, know, right? I, I, I <laughs> so feel like go. I'm in the right place to do this, right? So, <laughs> you know, I, you know yeah, so, yeah, I'm in a safe spot here, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, another thing, I mean, you know, large and, you know, megcaps, like by definition, they've put their best growth behind them. You know, that's why they're large and, you know, and mega caps. And so they have a shrinking menu of reinvestment options, they have more competition coming at them. And and the management that got them there is often gone or soon to be gone, which which means you you have a good shot that eventually an unimaginative bureaucracy is going to take over that business and eat it alive from within. You know, I mean, it's ironically, I think you know 
Warren Buffett's my hero. Uh, I honestly mean that, but I think a perfect example of this problem is Berkshire, which I'm not long, and you, I don't think I'll ever be long that. It's you know it's run by the greatest capital allocator of all time, and it's underperformed the S and P by like a percent and a half the last decade annualized. And you know hindsight says they should have been shrinking their size, returning capital, um, and and but now but people who invest in that it's like. What's the probability there's going to be new management seceding Buffett that preserves the culture and, and beats an index fund over the long term rather than kind of giving it the uh, the GE treatment? So I just, I, you know, these are all things that kind of steered me away from the large cap end and pushed me down to micro cap, you know. Mm-hmm. So, cool. yeah, it's. So, oh, and one more thing. And by sure. the way, and in truth, I just like micro caps more. I think they're more interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I like. I like going off the beaten path, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I like quirky, weird situations. I think they're more fun to research. You, I, I, I can actually value them. Like, I have no idea what Amazon is worth, and I don't understand how anyone else would have an idea what Amazon's worth. Um, and you can, you know, you can call their management, get them on the phone. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're small enough to be lucky to dabble in a microcap space, you know, I think it's something you should embrace. So. Mm-hmm. Is that enough pumping in the microcap space for, for your podcast? <laughs> I think that's good enough for now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. All right. Just trying to help the podcast here. So. Oh, dude, thank, thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so then, so transitioning then into your into your philosophy. You know, what what is your investing philosophy when you're looking at microcaps? Yeah, so this is probably another. Um, it's probably not a long answer out of me here. Um, you guys are gonna experience what it's like like to be my wife here the next probably 10 <laughs> minutes but uh <laughs> i don't pity anyone who's still listening yeah the uh i uh yeah so i mean investing philosophy i kind of chop it up into a couple of different things because it's you know you have kind of like the general background principles um that that kind of form the structure of 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 how you invest and then i have the kind of specifics of like okay well how do i pick a company you know um you know and then I guess the, the other thing would be kind of portfolio management. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the kind of general principles, which I, I, I basically boiled it down to three um, that I just constantly say to myself in my head. Um, and, you know, we'll see if they change over time. But, you know, it's basically uh, stay small, stay long term, stay cool, you know. And, uh, you know, we covered stay small. Um, yeah, it's just it's just harder to manage more money. Um it's you know it's easier if you can stick to a reasonable asset size, which which is convenient because I'm a crappy fundraiser. So I mean that's it's actually uh, it's a it's a great policy for me personally probably. Um, and uh, you know I mean I, I always find it interesting people can't figure out why you know a hedge fund all star lost his magic. It's like he's 20 years older with a G5 boat and like an incredibly shrunken investment universe. You know it's like yeah what happened you know so. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so we kind of covered the stay small piece. The the long term thing is to me um, means kind of squashing out short term thinking wherever it pops up. Uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to just getting rid of bad habits. Like don't stack, don't you know check stock prices. You know unless you have a reason to. Like don't uh, waste time thinking about performance. It's it's the most important thing, but it's also a complete and utter byproduct of the other things your attention should be on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't worry about what other people are doing. You know, it isn't a tragedy because some other guy became a Bitcoin millionaire. You know, it's uh, that's fine. Um, I, I don't know. There's like, Charlie Munger has like my one of my favorite quotes ever uh, on that last point. Um, I don't know if you ever heard it. It's uh, he says uh, it's, it's something along the lines of it's it's envy is a really stupid sin because it's the only one you can never possibly have any fun at. <laughs> <laughs> I just, quote. I, I just love, yeah, I, I just love that. That guy's a quote machine. Yeah. The, uh, um, stay cool. is kind of my third, like background principle. Um, I mainly picked that name cause I couldn't think of anything else. And it's a really good, uh, root song. Um, you, you know, feel free to YouTube that song, anyone out there. Um, the, uh, but, but I mean, the way I look at it, it's kind of the mindset issue. Um, you know, you're trying to keep a balanced, middle way mindset you know trying to like avoid extremes um get yourself all worked up you know you just you can't take things like too seriously because it's you know 
to me, that's all part of just allowing yourself the mental space to, to like adapt and evolve. Um, and, and that's like vital because I mean, you need to be okay with being wrong and changing your mind. Um, you know, it should, you know, being wrong, change your mind shouldn't be like an existential crisis. And, uh, um, yeah, actually, uh, I'll, I'll throw in a little quote your way, actually. Uh, the, so this is, so Thomas Huxley said this about, like he said, he said about the great tragedy of science, he said it was the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And I just, I just, I just love that. Cause it's just, uh, you know, it's one thing to say like, Oh, I changed my mind with the facts change and blah, blah, blah. But to me, like that's, uh, uh, that's kind of a lifestyle choice that that's, that's just, that's, that's a lot of that is just focusing on observing yourself from the outside and kind of managing your emotions and, and being okay with being wrong. And, and being wrong is, is kind of hard in the business because it's, you know, the whole narrative people use to raise money is you're basically saying I'm a genius, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but you can't really believe that and have long-term success, I think, you know? So you got to find that balance. Hey, um, you, one, one thing I, I remember that always got me through, especially when I played baseball is like, Hey, look, you know, Bernie Williams is my favorite player growing up. They were always like, you know, look, Bernie Williams makes millions of dollars and he gets a hit you know, he gets a three hits every 10 at bats, you know, or, or even two, it still makes millions. So, you know, failure is part of it. I used to work at a bar in college. There was a guy, uh, there was a guy there. It was like the skeezy owners, like skeezy son. And, uh, <laughs> did you say the same thing? I hope not. <laughs> oh God. He would, he would go up and just throw insane game at every single woman who walked in there. Oh, and, 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 you know, and he would like, you know, strike out usually, but he'd turn around and then he'd go, Hey, like, you know, I'm batting 300. He's like, I'm an all-star in, in baseball. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, so yeah, it's much, uh, it's like the rated R version of that story, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's, so, uh, but yeah, so I mean, that's, that, that's kind of my like principles. Uh, you know, I know you want me to dive into kind of how I look at like specific yeah. investments or, well, let's, well, what I'm, what I'm want to know now is, you know, those are kind of your principles when you're, you know, that's good to have as your foundation, you know? And, and yep. so now, you know, what, what's then your process for sourcing ideas and then assessing a potential new micro cap, uh, uh, investment? Yeah. So like I, I, so actually, yeah, so you're only, yeah, I'll double back and kind of talk to the source and the ideas sure. and then I'll talk about how I assess them. So, um, you know, on, on the sourcing front, I, I mean, I say like 50% are word of mouth. Um, other investors I respect, collaborate with, um, or, you know, occasional per- persuasive write-up I stumble on online. Um, you know, one thing that kind of took me a while to appreciate in those cases, of course, is, you know, I, I specifically try to avoid reading someone's 15-page thesis before I do my own work now. Uh, I think it's really important to go through a normal process, uh, baseline, not someone else's kind of fleshed-out thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, get their 60 second elevator pitch, you know, it's someone you respect, you trust, like you think they do good work. Um, but, but back off at that point, do your own work and then come back and look at their work and discuss it with them. Um, so that's kind of probably half the ideas. Um, the other half is just coming from all directions. Um, you might be looking at one idea that leads to another. Maybe you look up a competitor and you're like, Oh, these guys are way better. Um, you might uh, see someone you think is interesting pop up on a board of directors somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I use some screening tools and keyword searches and stuff, mainly, you know, you know, things like, uh, like for example, like I think non U S spinoffs might be a little bit underfollowed at times. Uh, VMed was a good example, uh, from earlier this year. And are you currently a shareholder? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. So I, uh, I, I was, I sold and, uh, I'm pretty sure it's dropped a lot. So I might need to look at it again, but, but no, I, I, I was long at the beginning of the year and I sold, uh, probably a month or two ago. Um, the, uh, so the, you know, but, but, but all, when I, in terms of screening tools and keyword searches, I try not to use those in a way I think an algorithm could easily, you know, replicate. You know, I, you know, I, I want to keep AI from stealing my job for as long as possible. So it's kind of, you know, I, I like stuff where it's like, you know, I found this through a route that, you know, a quant couldn't have found this through. Um, so that, that is something to kind of think about. Um, 
But I mean, honestly, like in the end of the day, sourcing ideas, it's, it's, you know, sources come from everywhere. Ideas can come from everywhere. It's mainly just, you know, you, you just need to start with some intellectual curiosity and just kind of go hunting. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, um, once I actually, you want me to kind of talk about what I do once I have an idea? Yes. In here? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll answer questions for you. I can feel, I can feel where I'm coming. <laughs> so, yeah, so like the first thing I do is this. Like I have a very sensitive filter. You know, we got like whatever, 50, 100,000, you know, potential investments in the world. Like you need a really sensitive filter because you don't have a lot of time in a day. Um, so I kind of go through – I'll dismiss ideas in a matter of minutes sometimes. Um, you know, and, and, and the filter, I'd say there's kind of three – questions um i'll ask myself before i before i put something onto my research list uh it's can i comprehend a business you know without a phd um which you know basically means i'm never in biotech um you know it is a room to be wrong uh that's largely a function of the leverage and complexity inherent in a business uh both of which uh you know if you think about it just eat up margin of safety um and, and make valuing the equity um, frankly, really, really difficult. Uh, the, uh, and the third thing, and it's probably the biggest one, uh, is, you know, I'm looking at is management incentivized to grow per share equity value. Uh, you know, I'm looking at things like comp to equity ownership ratio and historical share issuance and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, so if it, if it clears those, um, it's on my research list. Uh, and at that point, it's, you know, my research list is often longer than I have time for. So mm-hmm. it's a matter of shifting stuff up and down it um, based on, you know, a number of factors. But I'd say a couple of factors that push things up or down uh, would be one, if another investor I respect is long it. Um, in a sense, that means they pre-vetted it. Um, so, I, you know, I know I'm, there's a better chance I'm not barking up the wrong tree. Um and I say another thing is if I can identify a specific uh, reason, there might be like a non-fundamental mispricing. Um, and that kind of goes back to, you know, spinoffs, they just cut the dividend, you know, cyclical, cyclicality issues. Um, you know, maybe it's an international market that happens to be really depressed right now, um, et cetera. Those will push things up faster. Um, once it's at the top of my research list, it's kind of that it's deep dive time. Um, and you know, you, every investment, like you, there's no like standard to me, like I've tried to do checklists and mental lattice works and all these, I've tried to do all these different things, but I mean, you know, the bottom line is every single business and investment kind of calls for its own angle Mm -hmm. to hit it from. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the end of the day, what I'm really looking for is kind of three things. I'm looking for, you know, a strong capital allocator um, who, as I've mentioned, is already, you know, owns a bunch of shares, hopefully. I'm looking to see that they have a reasonable growth runway. Um, that doesn't mean it's explosive. It just means they have things that they can do with their earnings and reinvest it into. Um, and uh, I'm looking for a balance sheet that's not kind of under duress. Um, you know, and really in the end of the day, those three items are th- that, those are the things that will push my fail fair value up and down. And obviously if they're pushing it down too far, I'm unlikely to have a position ever. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're pushing it up, I'm more likely to. So, um, and they interplay, uh, you know, so if there's like a reasonable growth runway, you know, I don't want their flexibility constrained by a stressed balance sheet, you know, whether that be from leverage or operating losses, um, and all else equal, if you find like a stress balance sheet, your your probability, you know, probability wise, you're I think you're less likely to find a good capital allocator. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a good capital allocator, you know, I want them paired with a decent growth runway. I mean, that's their menu of reinvestment options. So like, mm-hmm. and it's especially important that last one in the context of value investing because, um, you know. Value traps, you know, your your best defense against like a value trap is you know quality management and growth, you mm-hmm. know, because you know at the end of the day, they can continue to grow earnings. Even you know the market may never agree that yeah this should be worth fifteen times, not ten times earnings, but at least they can grow the earnings even if it doesn't re-rate. So, um, so yeah, those are kind of the uh, 
those are the things I'm really looking for. Um, if you want, I can kind of, I, you know, I will say this, there's a pet peeve too. Like everyone says like, Oh, I'm looking for these things. And they just say all the things in the world that are good. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's like kind of, but you're you dealing know, with, no, mi- you're dealing with micro caps. There's going to be hair, you know, there's going to be hair. And so I, I so you got to pick, you got to like pick the things you care about, but you also got to pick some things you don't really care about as much. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those for you? So I, yeah, so for me, it's like so. So I told you the things I really care about. The things I, I don't really care about are, you know, I, dividends. You know, I think a lot of people, kind of, especially with a low rate environment, got obsessed with dividends. But like, I mean, look, if someone knows of a stable, no growth, twenty percent yielder, uh, you know, let me know. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested. But you know, it's like, <laughs> but generally, if I own something, I think it's cheap, and like. If I think it's cheap, there's almost certainly better options for them to reinvest their earnings into. Um, you know, for example, right off the bat, there could be buybacks, um, but also maybe their reinvestment options to grow the business. So, you know, tax or dividends are quite tax inefficient. So, um, I prefer to, you know, that's not something I'm paying up for. If it happens to be there, fine. Um, I guess. I guess the second thing, uh, you know, moats. Yeah, I, I kind of don't care about moats to be honest. Like, I, I feel like everyone got, has gotten really obsessed with them. Well, um, well, let me ask you on that point because, it you know from my from my understanding, you know, or, or and I'm probably wrong, but you know when I hear that there's a good growth runway versus I don't care about moats, I don't know. That seems almost counterintuitive. Can you can you clarify that? Yeah. So. So here I can give you like an example, like two different businesses, right? Okay. Um, I'm probably about to mention a holding here too, so I'll, I'll disclose it if I do. <laughs> like, so there's, you know, you could take like two different businesses. Like, you could take, uh, like, take one that's, you know, let's call it Company A and Company B, right? So Company okay. A is like commodity-ish, low margin, uh, but has super good management or super efficient, and they tend to have decent return on invested capital because they turn their assets and they manage their balance sheet well. Um, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll bring up a specific name. You can look at my – actually, I think I tweeted out a thread on this a couple of days ago. People people want to get, kind of go see the thesis on it. It's a British company, Cambry Automotive, Automobiles. I am long. Um, you know, but you know, that's a perfect example. I mean they do like 1% to 2% you know, before tax margins. Um, there's no moat you know, being a dealership per se. I mean you have a little bit of like a local moat. Because you have franchise rights over an area, but not really. I mean, there's no no one can make an argument that there's a great moat there. But they have great management. They run it really efficiently. They turn their assets. They, you know, they they have really cheap debt structure because basically the the uh, auto manufacturers like leave stuff with them on consignment, which doesn't carry any interest expense for the first you know X period of time. Um, and it works, and they and they produce really high returns. They can they can grow. They can produce twenty percent returns on equity. You know, um, you know, and then you could take Company B. Um, you know, that one's you know has a bit of a moat, and they have a bit of a moat, and it's manifesting itself in high operating margins. You know, and they're achieving a high return on invested capital, but like you know, competitors are going to go after that. Like those operating margins stick out like a sore thumb. So it's like. You know, it's the Bezos line. You know, your margin is my opportunity. So to me, like, and in the end of the day, like, I'm going to have to say, okay, well, people are going to come after them the next five, 10 years. Can they protect their moat? You know, and, you know, you can get in reinvestment boat concepts and do all that stuff. But the truth is, if we're honest, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen with these competitive dynamics over five, 10 year periods. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, uh, and I think it's getting, it's getting harder to, to do that. I mean, the pace of change is constantly getting faster, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in 1990, you know, you could have some company and you're like saying, okay, well they have a strong moat and, you know, I think, you know, between now and 2000 are going to do great. Well, you had no idea what the internet was going to do. You had no idea how it was going to impact it. You know, in 2006, you could have done it, and you had no idea what the iPhone was going to do. I mean, you know, taxicab medallions. Like, who on earth was, like, sitting there in 2006 going, oh, you know, one of the big risks to these taxicab medallions is the iPhone, you know? It, you know no one, you know? <laughs> right? So it's like, 
but with like but with like a good management team that's just running the heck out of their business and has a bunch of skin in the game like i'm like yeah he'll probably be a good manager in five years mm-hmm. and if i'm buying him cheap you know and and cambria again i'm you know i'm very low on that uh you know they're just seven times earnings you know they're like 25 percent of like uh on like an ev to on an EV to sales basis, sort of like twenty five percent evaluation you see for the equivalent business model in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. so I just think it's to me that's more so, interesting. Right. So I mean, for you, it's really all about operational efficiency as well as quality of management. So you know, for you, I, I, you said this actually earlier when you were talking about you know uh, your experience in, in Egypt and working you know on the inside of a publicly traded company that management quality and incentives is very important to you. You know. What are the certain types of qualities that you do then look for in management? And and what also are incentives that, you know, for you, you'd like to see? Well, so so on the incentives, uh, the more it's just like um, – and again, I'll bring up the Cambria example again just because, you know, it's a, it's one right in hand. I mean, you know, he owns you – know, you know, the guy who runs it owns 40 percent of the shares. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he hasn't sold a single share since they IPO'd it in 2010. He doesn't sell the shares. He owns shares. You know, if you look at his compensation, um, I don't have numbers in front of me. I think it's probably he probably the market value of his stock, which I think is undervalued. It's probably about thirty times his annual compensation. So for me, I'm like looking at that, thinking, you know, yeah, like if you look at his return on his equity, he's getting like a three percent compensation dividend, shall we say? You know, mm-hmm. and he's getting, uh, but like at the end of the day, if he wants to make money, he's going to have to move the equity. Um, so I, you know, that's the ideal incentive is old fashioned common share ownership. Um, it's not feasible in a lot of cases. Um, certain cases, the guys are new and, you know, but in those cases, I like to see where they'll say, uh, they'll say, um, uh, Nicholas financials and the company I'm long, um, you know, they brought in a new CEO in 2017 and said, you need to own five times your compensation and, and shares, uh, by 2023. Um, so, you know, they're giving them time to get there. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, that's the incentive. That's what I care about most. Uh, you know, it's, I'm not as fan as like the options and it's really, I, I haven't seen a lot of great incentive compensation schemes that just replace old fashioned share ownership. Um, in terms of qualities, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the I hate using cliche words, but I mean, you know, it's kind of, you're looking for outsiders, um, on one hand, um, people that maybe are thinking a little different. Um, but on the other hand, you also just might be looking for people who are running it like a small business. Mm Um, you know, don't really seem that aware of the fact that they're publicly traded and they're just kind of, they're just, the business is their life. Uh, that's everything they do and they're just, they're just focused on it and they're running it. Um, that, that can work too. Those aren't necessarily outsiders. Um, you know, the, you know, I guess, uh, you know, obviously one of the things I'm going to look at, if some guy's been in a company for 10 years, I'm going to go look at return on equity, return on invested capital. You know, I'm going to be looking at those measures for sure. Um, but a lot of things you don't have enough of a record. Um, Mm -hmm. So you have to go to these subjective measures. I like to see how people communicate. I mean, when you have someone who writes a good annual letter, it's nice, you know. Um, but, you know, you don't always find that. Sometimes mm-hmm. there are good managers who just don't do that, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So Cool. So, so then, you know, my, my next question for you, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask, you know, and uh, you, you went through your experience a bit and you've already kind of talked to how that has – molded your investing strategy but you know do can you recall an investing experience that helped mold your your micro cap investing strategy <laughs> yeah, the, the short you, answer is no <laughs> i was gonna say usually usually when i ask that it's a loss so uh maybe that yeah, might no, spark yeah the, 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 the short answer is like no you know it's funny it's like uh, you know i i mean like the process to me it, it's waking up every day trying to get you know trying to get like a little wiser and hope that compounds over time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, you're just like, you're just constantly learning, you know, you're picking up little things every single day and you're kind of adjusting your views. And, you know, there was, there, I, I can't remember any real Eureka moments. 
Um, you know, as you're as you're developing as an investor, um, you know, you you start out, you have no idea what you're doing, and it, it takes you. I you know, I, I think it took me two three years till I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, but that, and then of course you can get overconfident, and you start making mistakes, and then like you know you have to like adjust and adjust and adjust. So you know, it takes it takes half a decade you know plus to to get to a level where you start to find your own as an investor i think um and uh you know i i guess i guess i guess i can answer the question too like this you know you talk about the i'm probably going back to what we discussed earlier but um you know working on the inside of a big kind of bureaucracy um it's publicly traded uh that, that, you know, my focus on management and incentives comes directly from that. And like, that's so important in a micro cap, especially like that management's important because it's the company. I mean, the CEO of a micro cap is the company in many cases, you know, there's no, there's no bench behind them. Um, so, so really trying to get a feel from them for them is, is something I've drawn for, from my uh, personal work experience. And, um, I, I do not underrate, um, how important it is for that person at the top to kick down a good culture. Um, mm-hmm. there's, uh, it's absolutely a real thing. It's subjective, but, um, you know, that's, you know, I've been on the other side and, and I, I, that that's something that really drives my process, you know, is, is, is focusing on the management. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so then, you know, what, what would you say is your advice that you would have for new microcap investors looking to get into uh, our space? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're like completely new to investing, um, you know, in general and, um, yeah, I think it applies to all levels of investing. But if you're small, for reasons we've discussed, I think microcaps a great place to focus. Um, you know, if you're completely new, I mean, I, I think there's two things right off the bat. You know, when people say, "Oh, I'm interested in investing," that I kind of push them towards. You know, I, you need to be able to speak the language, which means you need to be able to read a financial statement, understand basic accounting principles like debits and credits. Mm-hmm. Um, the second, the second thing I'll, I'll throw at kind of people who are interested in starting to invest is, you know, you know, read five to 10 of the classics, you know, Graham, Klarman, Lynch, Greenblatt, you know, Buffett annual letters, like, like read, like just plug through five to 10 of those things, you know, don't get obsessed with them. Don't become mm-hmm. one of those guys who just like does nothing but read books on investing. That's, I think that's counterproductive. You can absolutely overconsume investing books. Um, but, but, but do that because it's either going to, it's either going to grab you immediately and you're just going to get bitten by the bug or it's not. Um, and, and, and if it doesn't bite you and you don't immediately kind of feel that passion when you've been reading through a couple of these books, um, you know, open a Vanguard account, dollar cost average in there and go find another passion, you know, cause, cause it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's makes no sense to invest if you don't have passion for it. Cause it's, cause you might spend 20 years, and underperform the market. So you should at least enjoy it, you know? So, um, but then like, you know, once you clear those first two things, um, it's practice, you know, you're going to have to put in 10,000 hours. Uh, I I think that that's a good number. Um, you're going to have to kind of, you know, you're going to start small. Um, don't put in more money you're willing to lose and just slowly scale up. Uh, you're going to want to follow the blogs and investment sites out there going to be in seeking alpha comment sections. And, you know, you know, one thing I say like new investors too, is I'm like, don't be shy about just engaging other investors and looking stupid. It's got to get over that. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, because you're going to learn so much from collaborating and talking with other investors. Um, and you know, other than that, it's just, you know, pick a micro cap, grab their annual report and start analyzing it and feel your way through. Um, it's, there's no, I, I wish there was like a specific path you could lay out for people. Um, but everyone just kind of, everyone kind of takes their own voyage, you know, everyone mm-hmm. kind of finds their own way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I stress the passion thing and, and the reading is because I, I think that if you have a passion for it, you're going to, 
you're going to find your way there. And I think if you don't, I think you're screwed. So, you, know, you know, you hit on something really cool there. And it's the whole reason why I had the podcast is, you know, there's, there's so many different paths all to the same objective, you know, to make money, you know, and, and it's, right. uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Right. And, and that was, and look, I mean, I, I got investing cause I had a pot of money and I, I, I thought I had accounting knowledge and all that. And I said, I said, Oh, I, you know, I'll use this to make money. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't become about the money. Uh, you know, once you really right. get into it, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, like look, money's awesome. You know, it's great. Right. I absolutely like money's fantastic. You know what I mean? But it's like, it just becomes a, it's a byproduct of a passion and kind of just being in the game. You know, you right. just, you just kind of, you just kind of start to love the game and then the money becomes the byproduct. I, I, I don't think the money alone will drive people, you know? So, right. um, without a doubt. So, yeah. well, you, you think about it like a sport or a professional athlete. And I think they would all probably agree with that sentiment. You know, at the end of the day, it's for love. Of, it's for love of the game. Some of the best athletes I've ever seen are investors. Oh wait, no, it's complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, yes, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's our, it's our, it's our arena. You know, yeah. for us, you know, nerdy, you know, athletic people. It's great. All right. So, <laughs> so, so, Thomas, where can my audience go and find more information about you and PFH Capital? Yeah. So, PFH Capital. Uh, the website's PFH is in. I'll tell you, it stands for stands for pennies from heaven. Uh, if anyone wants, <laughs> if anyone wants to, that's uh, great. There's no YouTube for for kids out there. Uh, the uh, yeah, go uh, go look up uh, Frank Sinatra, Count Basie, "Pennies from Heaven." It's a great song, and I think the lyrics are just super applicable to value investing, which is how I landed on it. So, PFH is in pennies from heaven. Cap, C A P dot com, and uh, my Twitter handle. Uh, which I kind of plan to be periodically posting idea threads to and all that uh, is just at PFH Capital, PFH Capital. So, yeah, cool. pretty, pr- pretty, pretty straightforward. I love chatting with our investors, so you know, feel free to reach out. Cool. Thomas, man, thank you so much for joining me today. That was a lot of fun, and uh, have a happy holiday, and, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thanks, Bobby. Happy holiday. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Thomas, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone, and happy New Year.